You're listening to Booth One. Greetings, my friends, and welcome to episode 67 of Booth One. I'm Gary Zabinski, your host, and as always, we're here celebrating the art of lively conversation, focusing on the arts and popular culture. I have been waiting to have my guest today on the program for some time now, but due to his dauntingly busy schedule, uh, it's been difficult to arrange an episode, but I'm absolutely delighted that he's able to make it to our studios today. Uh, I'm burying the lead here, but my guest today is the multi-talented Robert Cornelius, musician, actor, educator, activist, and writer, homegrown right here in Chicago. Robert, welcome to the booth. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to uh, finally get you on the show. It's been a long time coming. We've been talking about doing it for quite a yes. while, but you're multi-talented and multi-scheduled on much <laughs> of the Chicago art scene. The multi-scheduling is, is pretty well said. As I mentioned, you're homegrown right here in Chicago. That is correct. You went to Chicago Public Schools. Graduated from Lindblom Technical High School. Yes, indeed. Lindblom Tech. Yes. Where's that? It's in Inglewood, as a matter of fact, on 60th and Walcott. Where'd you go to college? I went to Western Illinois University. And you studied what? Communications, arts, and sciences is my degree because my father wanted me to have a backup for my theater career in case it didn't make it. So I have <laughs> minors in theater and psychology. Well, I, I would say your theater career has made it. <laughs> I've done okay. <laughs> Did you do your first professional work here in Chicago in, yes. the, in the early 80s? In the early 80s, uh, my first show was at Stage Left Theater. Rosencrantz and Gildenstern are dead, and I played Horatio. It was uh, my fifth audition, as a matter of fact. I was supposed to go back to Western for graduate school to get my F MFA, but I had been there for five years because it took me a little longer because I had so many majors. Um, <laughs> it sounds like. <laughs> and I came home for a break. I had like a two-week break. And I decided, instead of going back and, and being in the same place, which was, it's a great, it was a great atmosphere and it was really wonderful, but I wanted to see if I could make it in the city. And so I decided not to go back. And I... I started auditioning, and my fifth audition was for that show, and I got it. <laughs> and uh, the, the funny thing about that is they needed... I, I'd learned how to do costumes in, in my last... That summer, actually, the summer before I graduated in uh, summer music theater, they hired uh, non-seamsters uh, and seamstresses to do costumes, and so I learned how to pattern and sew and that sort of thing. And they needed somebody to make Gertrude's dress, Gertrude's gown in this, in this, in this production. And I go to the costume designer, I, I can do it. And they gave me like a, you know, some velvet and some brocade fabric and, they, and a rendering. And I, you know, and I made Gertrude's gown and they asked me to join the company. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you can't be too good at something because they'll, they'll like, want to hire you. But being a theater rat was, has always worked to my advantage. You do know? you still do costuming at I all? I haven't in a while, but I've been talking about it a little bit more lately. It's sad for me not to utilize all of the, all of the talents that I have in the field. And so I, I've been revisiting it. it Tell our listeners some of the highlights of your acting career. You've been pretty 
actively steady since the early 80s. Yeah. I know you've been doing other things, and we're going to talk about sure. those in a few minutes. Yeah, but um, um, what, what are some of your highlights? What are some of your favorite shows that wow, you've done? There's there's a bunch, but I, I tell you, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern was was probably one of my favorites because it was the first. That's and, a great and, and, show. Yeah, yeah it's, great you know, play. It was, you know, it was not well received, but it was a lot of young actors, and we were coming all coming to this together, and so we grew together, and we had this great ensemble, and I'm still friends with some of those people, and that was 32 years ago. But they, which I, which is something I love about the theater. Uh, and at that theater, I got to work with Johnny Galecki when he was 11, who's now a big big old TV star. But we did The Member of the Wedding by Carson McCullers, and he was John Henry mm. when he was 11 years old. And so I got to do a quick change with him, and we you know and hang out with him when he was a kid. And that but that role, Honey Brown, was was a, a game changer for me. And then the first lead I'd done since college was uh, in 1997. I did. Blues for an Alabama Sky at Madison Repertory when that was still a thing, and that was that let me know that I could that I could compete with the big boys. I guess this is how I felt about it. I had been this is Madison, Wisconsin. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. It gave me the confidence to to keep going. But my advisor and professor at, at Western always talked about having a timeline and not doing following empty promises and that sort of thing. And so I always thought, well, if I, every time I get called back, that's another six months in the business, and every time I get a cast, that's another year. And so here I am 30-some years later, and, mm-hmm. I, and I have stuck to that pretty you strictly. There, there was time when I stopped to do other things as well. And then this year specifically has been pretty prolific because I hadn't auditioned for a few years, and I hadn't been in a show for a while, and I talked to... My boss and I said, "Look, I need to get back in it because I teach kids and I wanted, you know, to practice what I preach." And so I started auditioning again, and I got to do Wit, which is the last thing I saw you in. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which, which was wonderful. That the was, Hypocrites production yes, at the Den. Right after that, I got to do Picnic at American Theater Company. Which yes, was a dream. Which was a dream role. Very diverse casting on that show. It was Very inclusive. True to the story, and that and that's and what, true to the and story. That's what made it magical was that it was still true to the story, and I was really, really proud to be a part of that. And just recently, I was a part of the New Stages uh, series, which is uh, a new play festival and at, a, at the Goodman Theater at the here, Goodman Theater mm-hmm. in Chicago. Um, with a playwright named Ike Holter uh, uh, wrote a play called Lottery Day and and we got to do a production of that and that is just closed October 7th so it was sort of a staged reading but with lots of technical production values yeah and so it was was a workshop production more more than more than a reading because everybody was off book and it was a show you Mm -hmm. know which was which was really fun for us to do this and and to watch the development of the script from the first rehearsal until the last performance well you're definitely the very definite of a working Chicago actor. Finally. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a while, but it's nice to I know to you say took it. a little break there. Sure. Have you ever considered, or have you done so, have you ever considered moving out to one of the coasts, to New York, L.A., to uh, ply your trade and see what's going on out there? I, you know, I have a lot. A lot of the theater I did in the 80s and 90s, I was, I was moving around the country. I was doing a lot of regional theater, so I, I got to live in different places as far as, as far as Montana. I did something, you know, in California, and it's a, it's a weird thing about me. I'm always... I always want to come home. I feel like the theater community in New York is, because it's commercial, it has a little different uh, feel to mm-hmm. it. When I was thinking about moving out to Los Angeles for the first time, there wasn't a really strong theater community out there, which has completely changed in the past 
decade or so. There, there are always options, and I am always open, and my agents have offices in, on both coasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's good to keep in mind. Well, and they want to be sure that I'm ready to do it when they submit yeah. me for stuff like that, sure. because it would be a big change. But I would, be, uh, I would totally be open to it, absolutely. You're uh, also a successful musician. Yes. I wanted to talk a little bit about your band. Is it still called RC7? It is, yes. Uh, for Robert Cornelius. Well, yes. And there's probably seven <laughs> members at, at minimum. Actually, they, actually, when we first started, there were 11, and there have been six uh, since then, and every promoter always goes, well, where's the seventh guy? And actually, the seventh, seven is uh, representative of me being the seventh Robert Lewis in a chain of those in my family. I, I'm just Robert Lewis Cornelius Jr., but there are five others besides myself and my father that have the first and middle names Robert Lewis. So, so what sort of music does RC7 play? RC7 is soul music and R&B. It started out as a cover band, and we had a four-year residency at Shubas Tavern here in Chicago and played the hits. You know, We played soul music hits from the 70s and the 80s and 90s, and then we started writing songs. And I've written enough for a couple of records. One of them's finished, one of them's still in progress because I have so many things going on. But it was a, an outgrowth of, of stuff that I've been learning from the other bands that I've been with. Do you write most of the songs for the group? I do, yes. That is one of those things I wasn't really aware that I could do until I started doing it. Really? Yeah. The whole music career, it's, I kind of fell into because of circumstances and opportunities and that sort of thing. And so I had to, it took me a while to decide or to, to come to terms with the fact that people thought of me as a musical person. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's funny that you would not think of yourself as a musical person. I'm going to tell our listeners here that uh, I believe your uncle was the late, great Don Cornelius. That is correct. My father's who was only brother. The, your father's only brother, creator and host of the iconic dance show, Soul Train. That is correct. Filmed right here in Chicago for a long yes, time. Yes, for a long time. Right? Did you ever appear on the show as a child? I did, <laughs> as a matter of fact. I, uh, actually, I was a regular on Soul Train, and there is a story. The first time I went... I... Let, let, but let me just interrupt you to tell our listeners that Soul Train was sort of like, correct me if I'm wrong, was sort of like the American bandstand of R&B yes. and soul. That is exactly right. Uh, and blues. Yes. And uh, it was extremely popular. It was extremely popular I, for... Even imagine for decades, yes. So tell me your inside story. So I, w I wanted to go on the show, and I finally, I finally got some tickets. And this was after my uncle had moved to Los Angeles, and they started producing there. But there was still one here on uh, Channel Twenty Six WCIU in Chicago, and it was hosted by a man named Clinton Jen, who was a family friend mm. when I was a kid. And so I went with my friend Renee Hudson, who we are, I'm still friends with. We just talked about this just recently, and they would have a dance contest every day. And the winner for the daily dance contest from Monday through Thursday would be in invited back to, to compete against each other and then win a prize on Friday. And so Renee and I won on our day on Monday. We won, and so we went back on that Friday, and we won the money. And that evening, my mother was out in a club, and she says, oh, Bobby was, uh, was on Soul Train today and won some money, talking to the host, because they were friends. And he goes, oh, no, that's against the rules. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to give the money back. Oh, no. But they didn't was know. Was it who, a significant sum? No, it was like $15. But, we were, but I was 14, <laughs> so yeah. It was that a, was, it was a, a significant, significant for, for 14 years yes. old. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, but I had to give it back because it was unethical. I forgot know. to mention dancer as one of your multi-talents. <laughs> <laughs> but in place of it, I got to be a regular on the show. So I appeared on the one here in Chicago for about two and a half years while I was in high school. Sam Cooke is also one of your uncles. He was married to my father's stepsister, but yes, he was around when I was an infant. And my sisters remember him better than I do. But. You, you were surrounded as a child by some of the all-time great yeah. music legends all the time. Can you tell us about a couple of the encounters that, that stick with you? You know, it's an interesting thing about them being in my family and connected to my uncle is that they were just people to me. It was normal. I didn't think of them as heroes or larger than life because they'd be in the kitchen having drinks and cigarettes with my dad. <laughs> you know, this <laughs> like, oh, look, it's, it's Uncle Bobby, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that, that which actually bode well for me in not getting outside of myself when I when I meet people like that because so many of them were close to me it's it's one of the I I am not a really a star struck and that sort of thing because I just felt like they they, they could be in my kitchen with my dad <laughs> cool speaking of your childhood I ask this of our guests every once in a while I, I find the answer to be interesting do you recall the kinds of things that you pretended as a child when you were at play. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, many of us who launched our careers in the theater world yeah, yeah. or show business put on plays when we were kids or performed sure. for our parents. But lots of people did many other things. I, I've mentioned on the air before that I, with a couple of friends across the street, we used to, quote, make movies. Uh-huh. We would Many, many of them were military-themed or, or spy-themed, and we would just run around and narrate the film sure. as we did action. Do you recall something that yeah. you pretended as a child? My best friend Jonathan Clay and I were going to be stuntmen. And so there was a lot of diving over bushes. We'd just be walking down the street, and all of a sudden, one of us would like yell out, "Oh, gun!" And we, well, of course, you know, it was the '70s, so <laughs> there wasn't really the possibility of that. Right. But then we'd go diving under over bushes and rolling around and being Starsky and Hutch and Huggy Bear and all that sort of stuff. We did that a lot. And we also, I had a ping pong table in my basement, and he had a pool table in his basement. So we'd go from house to house. And it'd be Cool Hand Luke, and then it would be the Olympics. And so we'd play like 100 balls, a pool, and then, you know, in his air-conditioned basement, and then we'd walk to my house, and in my air-conditioned basement, we'd, we'd play ping-pong like it was Wimbledon or something like that, you know, it's yeah. th- that kind of stuff. One of the things that, that I always, always thought I was going to, well, my unattainable goal was to be a backup singer. And after uh, Young Americans, David Bowie's 1975 fabulous classic hit with that, with that backing arrangement, I thought, that I want to do that, and that you know, just it's just one of those ridiculous things. But so I, I, I sang all the time. My 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 sisters still say that they had a problem with me in the middle of conversation. I would just break into song, <laughs> it's just and and I was still listening to them, but I always have music. In my so you head. didn't dream of being the star. You dreamed of being. 20 feet from stardom. Well, pretty much. You know, actually, kind of. I, actually, I thought I was going to be a star, but not that the music was going to be that extra thing, which is, which as it turns out, is a lot of actors' dreams. <laughs> they, yeah, you know, sure. It's like I'm looking at you, Dennis Quaid. <laughs> 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 and so when I first had the opportunity to do music, I thought, oh, well, this will just be a lark because, you know, I'm an actor and, uh, you know, I'm trained at that. And, and it ended up being, you know, a really big part of my future. Let's talk about your musical sure. career. You have been a longtime member of the group Poi Dog Pondering. Yes. 
Let me tell the listeners a little bit about Poi sure. Dog. For those of them that don't know, not everyone is familiar with yeah. the, the band, although they should be. It's an American musical group noted for its cross-pollination, and I'm reading here a little bit from a description from uh, album notes. Cross-pollination of diverse musical genres, including various forms of acoustic and electronic music, and that's still true. Founded in Hawaii in 1984, yes. uh, about the time you were doing your first Played here first in play. Chicago right. by a gentleman named Frank Oral. Yes. Initially, as a solo project in '85, Oral formed the first lineup of Poydog Pondering to perform its first concert at the Honolulu Academy of Arts. Some of whom are still with the band. Uh, they still have some original people, yes. indeed. The band then embarked on a year-long street performance, busking a tour across North America, playing every possible city. Eventually, settling in Austin around 1987, where they uh, recorded their first three albums. In '92, so early '90s, the band relocated this time to Chicago. Now, yes. why did why did Frank decide to relocate the band to Chicago? For love. <laughs> That's the only answer. Not for money? He was smitten. And, uh, really? Yes, he moved up here for a woman and pitched it to some of the band members. They had a really strong following because of WXRT here in Chicago. And when I first met Frank, uh, because uh, of the woman that he was seeing, when I was a waiter at a restaurant called Scoozy, that was a pretty big restaurant. Scoozy, sure. That was in 1992, the first time he came up here, and they moved up here, and and the rest is history, as they say. Sure. Well, they began to incorporate orchestral arrangements and elements of electronic house music and soul music into their acoustic rock style. The membership of Poi Dog Pondering, as we've noted, has changed from album to album. There's new people. Again, there's a core group of original people from Hawaii. Chicago's a long way from Hawaii. He couldn't fall in love with someone from Honolulu (laughs) or Maui. The heart wants what it wants, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) You know that very well. So you are now an official member of Poi Dog, and you have been since the early 90s. Since 1993, I I was a part of uh, a a variety show called Millie's Orchid Show, which a, a really great artist named Bridget Murphy was the hostess, and Millie May was a, a character that that hosted a variety show. And when Frank first moved to Chicago, he became the drummer in the band called The Sequins, which was a bunch of men in, in jewel tone gowns. Very funny. <laughs> and I was a dancer. I was a backup dancer called a coal digger. In the 60s, Dean Martin would, had dancers called the gold diggers. Gold diggers. And they were all women and they were fancy. Well, uh, Millie May wanted to have coal diggers. And we, so it was five boys in muscle shirts and hot pants and construction boots and hard hats doing kick lines and, and that sort of thing in the show. There was a summer-themed show, and I was doing two lines from the song Hot Fun in the Summertime by Sly and the Family Stone. And Frank came up to me after the show and said, I'd love for you to come in the studio and do some spoken word on a song we're working on. And I go, sure. Just like that? Just, just from like, seeing you on just stage? Just from seeing me on stage. He looks, he's just kind of like, you know, but the, the, my voice is kind of distinctive. He asked me, and I'd never been in a recording studio or anything like that, and I thought, sure, yeah, give me a call. Here's my number. Sure enough, we get a call on Monday, said, listen, listen, we're looking forward to having you at 9 o'clock tomorrow night, come to the studio, work on the song. And literally, I got there, and the fr- and all he wanted me to say initially was were the words Willem Dafoe and teeth. 
and we still we actually still performed the song, so it, it, it was successful. But uh, then it was are, like, are those actual lyrics of a that song? Is, yeah, they're, 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 they're actual part they're of the lyrics. Part of the lyrics of the song. William Defoe and, well, teeth. and teeth. Yes, uh, yeah. Uh, Clearly, you did it very well. Well, apparently, because then, well, then there were hand claps, and then he had then he played start played another track and says, "Can you do some backup on this?" So I, I ended up recording backup on four songs that night. So a dream come true. You well, finally became and I the, thought, the backup and I, singer, but you didn't believe it. I was like, you know, that was a lark. It was great. And then he's like, okay, here's a cassette tape that should give you some idea of the time. Learn these four songs. We're going to do a show. The first show I actually did was on Earth Day, which is April 20th, 1993, outside of the Field Museum in front of 10,000 people. And I was coming from the south side on the on the, what was then the the six Jeffrey Express bus, and it had it had a stop right at the at the museum there, and I had to come across Lakeshore Drive and walk from the back of the crowd to the stage <laughs> for my first gig, <laughs> oh my and I, it was it was the longest walk I've ever taken in my life. I could not believe that he was. I was like, well, why would he ask me to do this? Yeah, <laughs> that was what I was thinking. It literally is what I was thinking. But I got backstage, got up for the first song, and he just turned to me and goes, you okay? You ready? And I was like, yeah, I guess I am. You know, if you think I can do it, then I can do it. You know, that was, it was, was the mindset. And they kept asking me, and I was doing a lot of theater out of town, and they were on tour, and so whenever they would meet up in a city where I was in a play, they'd have me do the show. And in 1995, when we were working on that, the record Pomegranate, I was offered a show in St. Louis, and uh, he said, I would never tell you to turn down theater, but we're going to finish this record. We're going to get on tour bus October 15th, and we're going to tour the country, and we want you to come with us. My family thought I was insane because I said, okay, and I turned down a role in a play. To go on tour with a rock band. Of, of, of people that I clearly just met. My sisters literally ambushed me at a lunch, at a Mother's Day lunch, uh, Mother's Day brunch, and said, what are you thinking? Why, why would you, who... What makes you think you can be a rocket roll singer? You know, they just didn't understand. And I was getting some like some pretty good traction with my theater career as well. And I would, and I just kept saying, "You have to see it. You have to under, You have to see it to understand it. I, I, there's no way I can explain it unless you see it." They finally they came to see us at the Vic Theater here in Chicago before we went on tour, and both of them came backstage and said, "Okay, now we understand." But the genius of, of Frank Oral is that he can find people like you and plug you in yeah. when you're available or when you're needed yes. or when he picks up the phone and says, hey, can you be yeah. in uh, such and such a town on such and such a date? Would love you to sing and, in the group today. And, and so that's how he started collecting people from here in Chicago. And most of the members that are with us now have been with the band for at least 20 years. The newest members are maybe 15, 15 years or less, but not, none much less than that. Because it creates this familial sort of construct that it makes it easy for us to be able to, this weekend, go to St. Louis or to go to Nashville. You sure. Know? And so it doesn't have to be the same 10 people because the language is so clear for all of us. You know, there's a shorthand that we have. As a, as a collective, that when, if there are some of us missing, somebody will pick up the slack for this singers that's not there. But that's because we can't really tour with 30 people you know, if we want to bring strings and dancers the way we did in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You, know. you mentioned an album called Pomegranate. Yes. What are your favorite tracks on Pomegranate? Oh, my gosh. Uh, One or two. Well, actually... Pomegranate is, is a really beautiful song. It's a, it's a, it's a quiet ballad uh, that I love so much. But then 
There's a song called uh, that I that I sing on that I love that Frank wrote. It's called Shizuluza, and it took on a different life after we recorded the song. But it was the 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 uh, inspiration for that song. My cousin Jesse was going to play bass on, for one of the one of the side projects, and he lived on 75th Street. And there was a, a, a record store on 75th called Shizuluza, and Frank thought. Oh, that's just a great word. He wrote it down and thought, you know. And so the next time I saw him, he's like, I was, I was over Jesse's and I saw this thing and I wrote this track and it was this tribal drum track that, that has become one of our signature songs. And, and I, I love that song. So. I'm going to try to play a little bit of that for Excellent. our listeners cool. and just give them a taste yeah. of vintage Poi Dog Pondering. gave up a little bit of your theater career for a while while you were establishing yourself with Poi Dog yeah. through the 90s, early 2000s. When yeah. did you get back into theater as a real calling? Well, probably, actually about 1999, I, I took a break. I realized that I had been on the track since since 1984, and I, you know, I was always auditioning for something or traveling somewhere or doing something, so I actually stopped and just spent four years traveling. I went to Jamaica a few times and seeing shows and, and doing things that I hadn't had a chance to do for a really long time. And I one day just said to myself, I think I need to audition. And whenever I needed, whenever I want to be in a play, my mom would just say, well, if you audition, you know, you'll get something because you have that belief. And so I actually called the people at Victory Gardens, which is where I got my equity card, and, and, and told them I was coming back to theater and, and if they had anything. So I got a call from Writers Theater in Glencoe. They were doing a production. One of our favorite places to Absolutely. go. Absolutely. They were doing a production of Our Town, as a matter of mm-hmm. fact. And they called me in for a couple of roles, uh, to read for a couple of roles. And I went in to read for Joe. And I read it the first time, and it was Bill Brown and Michael Halberstam. And they're like, can you do it 10 years older? And so I read it 10 years older, and they 
what about 20 years older? So I gave him some age and that sort of thing. And I just, I was very confused. I didn't know what was going on. I get home. I get a call from the artistic director of Montana Repertory Theater who says, I just talked to Bill and Michael and they seem to think that you would be great to come out to Montana and do My Children, My Africa by Arthur Fugard. Oh, wow. <laughs> so sight unseen, he cast me in the show. And three days later, I was on a plane to Missoula, Montana and that's how I got back into my theater career. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't expect that story. I, I take it you did not get the part in Our Town. I did not. Because you had to go to Montana. I had to go to Montana, and I was Damn. like, I, and I, the first thing I said, is that what they were doing? <laughs> you know, but it was... It uh, it ended up it, it was a it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I went out there, I lost like twenty five pounds, and got back into my craft. And we ended up touring the state of Montana, and uh, it, it was an educational uh, show. But it was uh, it was great to 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 remind myself what it was. That's that that's one of the great things place. about Chicago theater: this collaborative nature. It's true. It's a community of theaters, and everyone shares ideas. Everyone does, and everyone shares casting ideas. And it makes it makes everybody's art better if we if we are a collective. I really believe that. Yeah. What What do you think of the state of theater and the acting community in Chicago these days? Do you think it's very healthy? Do you think it's growing? Do you think I'm, it's moving think it's in the gro- right direction? I think it's growing. I think it's moving. I think that there are issues that we are dealing with that, as the political climate is what it is, mm. are coming to the fore. And but. Because, as an artistic community are being dealt with better because of our collaborative collaborative efforts. Everybody's trying to be inclusive. Everybody's trying to, to embrace diversity and that sort of thing. And and I feel like that is a positive thing. It's it's not so much colorblind as, as, as all the colors, you know, because when all the colors come together, it's a beautiful thing. There have been, you know, advocacy programs that have come up so that actors of color and, and, and non-binary actors... Sure, be, there's something called the Chicago Inclusion Project. The Inclusion Project is part of the reason that I got into to be seen for WIT and Picnic, as a matter of fact. They were, yeah. That organization was listed in the programs yes. of both of those shows. Yes. And they have been embraced and they have, they have been invited to, into every theater in the city, you know, and in, in the suburbs to, to help broaden the pool so that there is no default. And that is probably the, the the best thing to come out of it for me is to see that, you know, and I've been at it for a very long time. So I've seen it go through stages and fits and starts and those sorts of things. But when it comes to who is programming the shows and who's behind the scenes and who's funding, those sorts of things are what are starting to change. And that is that will, will help, help hopefully change the face of theater for the better for generations to come. You mentioned Victory Gardens Theater mm-hmm. uh, a few moments ago, one of the uh, fine regional theaters here in Chicago, uh, Equity Theater. Yes. They're currently housed in the old Biograph yes. movie house, um, outside of which John Dillinger was shot. Indeed. <laughs> it's what it's famous for. Uh, you're the Arts Education Director yes. at Victory Gardens, where we just saw Fun Home. Yeah. What a spectacular I show. It's I, I so can't beautiful. say enough about this production. So I saw the Broadway show uh, with the original cast a couple of seasons ago and just was so intensely moved yeah. by the whole experience. And I was equally moved by the experience here. I was a little trepidatious of going to see the show on a proscenium-like sure, stage, yeah. but I, I thought it all worked just the, beautifully. The intimacy for me, I almost felt like I wasn't being intrusive by listening in on it. It was so personal and emotional because it was so intimate. And I, you know, I talked to Gary Griffin 
about that the director during, during yeah. the rehearsal process and he and he was he said it would make it more of a Chicago production because of that that the close proximity and the, the honesty and truth that you have to have in a, in a room that's uh, like a fifth of the size of the Broadway houses yeah used yeah to playing. and you could literally feel the audience leaning absolutely, in absolutely at the entire time the, the yeah. night the night we went to see it at least <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's I, like that almost I every get to, night well I get to delete the post show discussions periodically and yeah so, I was going to ask you about that how have those been going really great you know I, I did my first one last Sunday I've got one again tomorrow but the interesting thing is the people that stay need a minute to get themselves together before they can actually formulate an opinion or, sure, or a I conversation could see that. about it, you know, and, and and so which of course, I like to watch it with the audience that I'm going to be discussing it with, to, to, just to feel the room. And so I've got to get myself together when I, if I'm getting on stage to talk about right. this. But the, the 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 most beautiful thing is how many people are talking about family and loss and 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 living your truth and those sorts of things like that are all really the beautiful themes in the play, and it also helps the audience members feel like they were a part of the production. I always tell my students that you, when they come to see a play, that they are the last part of the production. They are the, they are the final element that makes it a complete production because they are part of the piece. How Their responses and, and that sort of thing affect the way the piece is perceived, the way it's performed, and that is a lovely thing to see, to hear people talk about right after when it's still really visceral. Someone very smart has said that the theater experience begins the minute the audience starts walking into the theater. That's it. And it doesn't end when the play is over. That's true. It ends, well, maybe it never ends, because if you, if you remember the performance and you remember sure. your emotional experience, then the life of that play, the life of that performance lives on in infinity. And now we've got playwrights that are saying that they don't want you to discuss their play after the show, which is, which is interesting, but it is not of the time, I feel, that we are in right now. You know, I feel like that inclusion helps to to breed audiences. I love arts appreciators as much as I love artists. I love people who come to the theater and have that suspension of disbelief and, and let themselves go and be moved by it. We frequently talk about my favorite phobia, which is the uh, fear of sharks okay. on the program. Yeah, yeah, do, yeah. do you have any um, pronounced phobias? I do. Actually, it, it's a funny thing. I used to be a member of the American Roller Coaster Society. And there was a moment. There, there is such a thing. Everybody says that every time I say that. That is the first. The a ARS. ARS. The American Roller Coaster Society actually bought it for my best friend for his thirtieth birthday, and I bought one for myself. And while I was touring with Poor Duck Pondering, I actually got to ride seven of the top ten roller coasters in America. We would go to, to uh, Six Flags Great America and ride the roller coasters all day and all night. We'd be there for twelve hours and drive home, you know, exhausted. And we were on the American Eagle, which is a great wooden roller coaster. That's Iconic out there at, at, at Great America. Which Fort, great? Which Great America? And Six Flags that were here. The, in, the one here, the in, one here Gurney. in Gurney. Yes, and uh, we were on. We were on it for the fifth time. We were going up that first hill, and I looked to my right, and the sun was setting, and it was so big. And I thought, "What the hell am I doing up here?" And I just. I'm like if I make it down this time, I'm never gonna ride one of these again. And it was just, it was like that one and a half minutes was like, and so. I have vertigo now. I, I am oh so averse. I am so averse to heights that it's shocking that I ever rode roller coasters. I mean, with, like with wild abandon. So, so you went from a card-carrying member of the American Roller to, Coaster like, Society to the fear of I roller coasters. Can't even look over a banister on a bridge anymore. It's 
completely different, and it, it's just it's, it is the most irrational thing. I can't, and I don't care. <laughs> I don't. Well, I, 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 I'm sorry about your vertigo because that that's a you know that can be a serious problem. Listen, but Gary, if I'm watching if I'm watching Vertigo, the movie on television, that I still get those feelings. I see, you know, I, just the other day there was a, a a recreation of the iconic photo of the the, the iron workers on the scaffold above the buildings in Chicago in the sure. 1930s. They, they recreated that for something that they're building downtown. And I looked at that picture and I thought I was going to throw up. I honestly thought I was going to get sick because just thinking about them being 35 stories off the ground, eating sandwiches, I'm starting to sweat talking they're, about they're it. They're casually <laughs> eating. I, I know this, I know this picture yeah, very, yeah. very well. And I, I, don't, I, I don't understand it. Cannot imagine it. Well, I wanted to uh, impart this story that came out of Vienna this week. A man wearing a shark costume as men yes. are well, wanting to, want to do sure, yes. in the theater <laughs> to help promote a new computer repair shop was fined this week under Austria's new burqa ban. Oh my. Uh, burqas yes. are the sure. face and head coverings sure. Muslim women wear. The unnamed worker was standing outside the <laughs> The McShark computer repair store in Vienna. Of course he was. When police asked him to remove his shark mask, and when he refused, explaining that I'm just doing my job, police slapped him with a fine, which can be up to as much as $175. The anti-mask law, which bans any face covering in public, is aimed at the minority of Austrian Muslim women who wear full face veils, and, and went into effect at the start of October. Police said that another citizen and presumably one who hoped to expose the lunacy of this law, yes. alerted them to the violation at the shop. Well, I, I'm appalled by this story. <laughs> For so many reasons, I'm sure. For so many reasons. First of all, you should have the right to dress up like a shark anytime you yes, want you to. Yes, you should. Not anywhere near me. And, and this burqa law is, is just ridiculous. I think that they, uh, they did the right thing by uh, exposing it for what it was. Exposing it for, for sure. what it was. I wish more people would do that. What are your favorite movies and what's your favorite movie genre? You know, I I love them all. I I am a big. I, I love classic movies. Actually, my favorite movie, and I'll, I can actually give an answer, is All About Eve. There, Joseph Mankiewicz that wrote that script. One of my roommates actually got a signed copy of a working script when we were younger. It is just brilliantly written, brilliantly directed. They the actors are having so much fun. It is an amazing piece of theater on film. Is the way I feel about it. I mean, I can I can recite the entire movie. It's it's one of those it's one of those silly things that I just. I, the first time I saw it, I mean, I, I got the DVD for my nephew for his 10th birthday. It's like, this is a rite of passage. You need to love this movie for the rest of your life. <laughs> and he does. You know, it's been 21 years and, mm -hmm. he's, and he loves it. You know, we, we could quote we can quote it together. You Did know. you give him the book as well? I, the yeah, we, the we, book is tremendous. We had read the book before I ever showed him, ever gave, ever gave him the movie. You know, Peter Falk doing reading to yeah, his, you his were, grandson. Uh, yeah, you I were the Peter Falk. Falk. I was Peter Falk. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, okay. All right. I remember that scene. Yes, indeed. It's so beautiful. You, you love, I love good all kinds. sort of comedy drama. I love comedy dramas. I love action films. I love the collaborative effort of film. I feel like it is one of those things that you cannot do by yourself. And so it's always fascinating to me, especially if I'm watching movies that I love. You know, broadcast news is another one. I, I, I can watch broadcast news. Eight days a week, but but one it, of my absolute all-time all -time favorite, favorite performances I'm, I'm, in the world 
It's, it's Holly like, Hunter in that film. And I feel like Albert Brooks is right there with her. He is Aaron is one of the best characters ever written for film. And it's I, almost a perfect movie. It is. And I love I love James L. Brooks for that. He's done he's done that for me. I feel like Aurora Greenway in uh, uh in terms of endearment is one of the best female characters ever written for movies, and that's right up there with Margot Channing as far as I'm concerned. And Shirley McClaine, when she accepted the Oscar for that role, said, Thank you, I deserve this, and walked off the stage. And I <laughs> I remember right. yeah. I remember standing up on myself and going, yes, you do. Because <laughs> when, when we were kids, we used to go to the to movies every Sunday afternoon. It, and it was everything from the black exploitation movies to, you know, the karate films to Taxi Driver. We just saw everything. It was like a buck. And then if you grew up in Chicago, there was the 330 movie on Channel 7 every day. Every day. That's what I grew up on. And they showed everything. They showed everything. From like Bela Lugosi movies to... Uh, Elvis Presley movies. Yankee Doodle Dandy to Elvis Presley films, as you say. Yeah, that was was one of the great uh, joys of childhood. Absolutely. Being able to tune into movies. Well, that's essentially how... It's a Wonderful Life actually became a holiday That's favorite. Right. Not a very well-reviewed movie when it and first it came out. And it didn't make a lot of money. In the 40s. That's and it right. didn't make a lot of money, even though it is Frank Capra's favorite film. But once the rights ran out, yes. and it was available for mass distribution, and television stations were looking for additional programming, mm-hmm. they started buying up the rights to show these films because they could fill, as you say, the 3.30 right. slot on a Thursday afternoon. I or used to run home whatever. to see him. It was so great. Who do you draw inspiration from? My parents. My, my parents are my heroes because they allowed me to be this person because they allowed me to be an artist. I was talking earlier, I hold people in high esteem, but I not really a worshiper or a star, you know, starstruck person because my father was larger than life. My mother was the, is, is still the most nurturing person I know. If I say that I want to do something, she's like, well, just do it. You know, she told me that when I was six and she just told me that again, you know, nine months ago. It's silly. I used to, it's one of those things. I used to think that when I was a kid that Bill Cosby stole his material from my father because he was so funny <laughs> until I figured out that he had the Bill Cosby album albums in the house. <laughs> when I heard Bill Cosby, I, I, I heard my father say this stuff before. But I was like, "How is how is Bill Cosby using my dad's material and mm. becoming famous with it? That doesn't make any sense mm. because Daddy said that yesterday." And then you know, my uncle did so well, and I, I was just around that kind of success. And my father always said, "You don't have to work harder than anybody else. You just have to work as hard, but make sure that people notice it." If you had grown up differently and weren't going to be a musician and an actor and an educator, uh, which is a lot of things. Is there a dream that you wanted to be besides a stuntman? <laughs> I, I re- realistically, I mean, well, stuntmen have very, very short yeah, careers. Yeah, right. Ain't that the truth, right? Yeah. No, I actually thought I was going to be a psychologist. Uh, I was a psych major for the longest besides theater and uh, uh, my, my ultimate degree. There was something about listening that I was really, really good at, and I was—I'm still a very empathetic person, and I—and I'm very encouraging and that sort of thing. And so, I was—I was a psych major, and I was in my third year with that, and I took statistics for the first time, and I had a professor. Dr. Frankenheimer, as I recall, um, who we had twelve people in our class, and the, our, our textbook was just theory. There were 
maybe 34 pages in a statistics textbook. And so all the problems and homework assignments he gave us were on handouts. And statistics, you know, problems last for like seven or eight pages, you know, the mean, the median, the mode, the standard deviation, the variance, and all those sorts of things. But if you did all of those calculations and you were a hundred thousandth of a percent off, he didn't give partial credit. So there were 12 people in the wow. class. Seven, tough room. Oh, my God. It was, it was ridiculous. Seven of us flunked the class. Two of them got A's and three people got D's. So, <laughs> and all he kept saying was, you're going to be doing studies for most of your career if you, get, you, know, if you go into psychology. And I thought, you know, that's absurd. <laughs> so I had to take it again to meet the requirements for the minor. And I took it again and I got a B. But I thought, I'm going to take all the psychology and I'm going to go back to the theater department. And that's when I that's when I made up my mind for sure. Not bad preparation for being an actor. It is, and and it also helps me in, in my teaching as well. There's a lot of about the kids not not understanding that acting is behavior, that acting is being, and and that sort of thing. And so I can use some of the, some of the terminology from that to to help illuminate that for them. And I really love that. Do you go into the schools to do your teaching? Chicago Public Schools. Yes, I have four teaching artists uh, on on the staff along with me. We go into we are in eight schools around the city. We work mm-hmm. with about six hundred kids a year. Like at Sin Arts High School, I'm working with uh, kids from their freshman to their senior year. Schools all over the city. Simeon on the south side, and we've got a couple of schools on the west side. Because for me talking about diversity again the kids are not that diverse whatever their economic background whatever their social backgrounds or anything else they're kids and they just want to be heard and so if i can bring them together to see that in each other from these very disparate sections of the city then that gives them something that they didn't even consider is that something that maybe you wished you'd had more of when you were in um, school i had it we took the arts for granted. We went to see the opera, and we went we went down to see musicals and Broadway shows, and we had stuff coming into the school. And I mean, I my junior senior years of high school, I wasn't out of the school until five or six o'clock every day because of rehearsal, because of clubs, because of you know stuff that they kept us engaged all the time. And most of those things were the first thing that things to go when they started these budget cuts, which have been going on for like twenty years now, because I've been at it as long as it's been happening. It is a necessity for me to be, and people like me to be in schools now so that these kids actually understand that this is uh, out in the world. You know, they get to leave their neighborhoods. They get to see the city in a different light. They get to see themselves on stages. If I go into the schools with them and tell them, I want to know your opinion, if they come and see a play and somebody says, well, I didn't really like it, and I ask them why, they go, really? Rather than thinking that it's the wrong answer, tell me why you didn't like it, and then we can go from there. And the first time you get them to realize that, they go, huh. And I always say, if I could just put on grant proposals, if I can get a kid to go, huh, then I'm a success. That discovery moment, once they realize it's not as hard as they thought, then it gets easier and easier every time. Part of that comes from that psychology that we were just talking about as well. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Broadway musical? Yes, I have, again, several. (laughs) West Side Story is my all-time favorite. But Sunday in the Park with George and Follies are probably, Sunday in the Park with George just destroys me every time. Every time I even still listen to it now. But seeing that show was another one one of those game changers. Do you work a lot in musical theater here in Chicago? I have 2007, my first musical, as a matter of fact, my first full production of a musical was Raisin at Court Theater. It's an an adaptation of the play. It was a Broadway show in 1972. It was nominated for Best Production. And, you know, Absolutely. and we had a woman 
Ernestine Jackson, who played Ruth in the original Broadway production, came back and played Lena, the mother, in our production and was singing that color to a soprano. It was cool. insane. That's yes. cool. Yeah. Well, we do something at the end of our broadcasts, Robert, and I hope you stick around for this. You sure. got some time? I do, sure. We do a segment called The Kiss of Death. Okay. <laughs> it's not as ominous as it sounds. It's a profile of someone who was recently passed. Okay. Could be famous, not famous, right. entertainment world, art world, any world. Today we're going to talk about Roy Dotrice. Okay. You may remember Roy Dotrice as Mozart's father in the film Amadeus. Roy Dotrice, a British stage, film, and television actor who began performing as a prisoner of war in Germany and worked in Britain and America for six decades, died recently. He was most known for his one-man shows, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. Ever done a one-man show? Have you ever had a, wanted to do a one-man show? I'm actually writing one as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Who in America is not writing a one-man well, show? You know, I, that's not. I don't mean that in a cliche way. But it, just, is, it has grown out of uh, being asked to do storytelling. Uh, you know, I've started writing stories, and yeah. those are all in the first person, and they're starting to compile. I've done yeah. it like seven or eight times, and and, I, and every time I get another one, I think, well, this is this would be interesting if you know if I could figure out how to put this together in a piece. Hailed by critics for suffusing his characters with fine-tuned blarney, malevolent passions, and brooding gloom, and Mr. Dotrice won the Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in 2000 for his portrait of the conniving Irish father and pig farmer in an acclaimed Broadway revival of Eugene O'Neill's A Moon for the Misbegotten with Gabriel Byrne and, and Sherry Jones. Mr. Dotrice appeared in more than 50 plays in London and New York, not counting some 300 more as a young British repertory stalwart, you know, in Britain. Playing the provinces was actually yeah, a thing. A thing yes, you would go absolutely. everywhere and you'd play a different part, you know, pretty yes. much pretty much every day. The dream. Well, you sort of did that with Poy Dog. We were on tour. It's, it's, it's much the same thing. Yeah. With a nimble voice that evoked creatures of, from realms of fantasy, Mr. Dotrice was a popular storyteller on albums and audiobooks. He narrated the epic tales of The Lion King, The Adventures of Richard Adams' Rabbits and Watership Down, and the myriad characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. You know what a song of ice and I fire is? Oh, you will. The fantasy <laughs> books that were adopted for the series Game of Thrones. Ah, there you go. In fact, he played a small part in one of the Ooh, uh, right? seasons of Game of Thrones. As I mentioned uh, earlier, he was Mozart's father in Amadeus. But Mr. Dotrice was perhaps best known for his one-man shows, including something called Brief Lives, which we don't really hear about anymore, but it was a portrayal of the 17th century writer John Aubrey, which opened in London in 1967 and ran intermittently there and in the United States for years and years. It earned Mr. Dotrice, in fact, a mention for a time in the Guinness Book of Records with 1,782 non-consecutive performances. Oh. Uh, eventually, Hal Holbrook went on to break that record with his uh, Mark Twain yes. uh, for non-consecutive performances. In another one-man tour de force in 1980, Mr. Dotrice starred in Mr. Lincoln at Ford's Theater in Washington, where Lincoln was, of course, slain in uh, 1865. Uh, and he performed it later on Broadway, and they did a PBS special for it. Have you ever done any audiobook work? We had a guest on. I have not yet. We All had right. a guest on a few episodes ago, uh, my friend Kevin Tice, who yes. has decided to dive all in on the audiobook narration yeah, experience. Yeah, I would, I, would, I would love to do something like that as you well. Would, you would be wonderful. You I have, think a, you have be great. a great voice for it. Uh, do, you do, do you do other voices? Do you do accents and I things? Do. Of course I, I you do. do. You're a trained professional. Yeah, yeah. I, I do as many as I can, yes. 
Uh, Roy Louis Dotrice was born on the island of Guernsey, which is a British dependency off the French coast in 1923, the son of a Belgian pastry chef. Everybody comes from somewhere, <laughs> That's I guess. The truth. In 1940, when Nazi troops invaded Guernsey, Roy and his mother escaped to Britain, where he joined the Royal Air Force and became a radio operator and a gunner on a bomber. On a raid in 1942, his plane was shot down over the Baltic, and he and a few others floated in a dinghy for days and were washed ashore, where they were captured and spent the rest of the war as prisoners in Germany. To keep spirits up in the Stalag, the prisoners staged makeshift plays. Mr. Dotrice's first role, in fact, was the fairy godmother in Cinderella. <laughs> they, of course, had no women in camp, so you had to do those kinds of things. We had another guest on just last episode, Colin Cordwell, whose father, John, also spent some years in a prisoner of war camp, three years, in fact, and he was an architect, and he designed a theater in the camp. Wow. I don't think he was a performer, uh, unlike Mr. Dotrice. Uh, after the war, he plunged into acting with a conviction, and for 12 years, he performed in hundreds of plays and repertory companies, uh, often uh, a new production every week, as we said. You never right. can tell. In 1947, he married a woman named Catherine Newman, who was an actress, and they had three daughters, Michelle, Yvette, and Karen, and they all became actresses. Oh, my God. I love it. <laughs> it runs in the family. I love it. In 1957, Mr. Dotrice joined the forerunner of the Royal Shakespeare Company, and for nine years he appeared in roles such as Hamlet, Iago, Falstaff, Julius Caesar, and other Shakespearean characters with casts that included future luminaries of the British theater like Charles Lawton and Albert Finney. Albert Finney. Mm, what a, I know. What an actor. Yes, indeed. Looking back on his career, Mr. Dotrice recalled one of his more unusual achievements, introducing baseball. Are you a baseball fan? I am a baseball fan. Introducing baseball, learned from Canadian POWs during the war <laughs> to cricket-playing members of his Shakespeare troupe in 1959 while he put together an all-star team to challenge Americans at a nearby airbase. Get this. Paul Robeson played first base. Sam Wanamaker played second. And Lawrence Olivier played the hot corner at third. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, come on. (laughs) Peter O'Toole was the shortstop. Albert Finney was the catcher. I pitched, said Dotrice, <laughs> and Charles Lawton was the umpire. Wow. That's perfect. That is perfect that, for Charles Lawton. Perfect casting. <laughs> I, I appreciate that about him. Yes. You know, that, that left side of the infield with Olivier and Peter O'Toole, I have to say, I, I don't know how they paid attention well, to the ball while well, passing the scotch <laughs> bottle back well, and well, forth. Not to mention deciding who, who passed the ball, who <laughs> caught the ball worse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, uh, we wore black tights and white Hamlet blouses. Of he said. course they did. The women said, never mind the game. Look at their legs. <laughs> Mr. Dotrice was 94. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, he was a, a wonderful actor. I saw him in a number of films, of course, in, including Amadeus, as I mentioned, and, and uh, he will be missed. Robert, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. The very best of luck. What can we see you in next? What are you appearing in on stage? Um, actually, I don't have anything lined up for the theater, but we uh, we will be doing a, a, a series of Poet Dog Pondering shows at City Winery in December. This will be our fifth year. We, we do up five shows uh, in a like the 26th through the 30th and, and those are really really fun we get to hang out as a family we get to play for a lot of people that aren't in town all the time and, and have some fun that sounds wonderful well get yourself a part in a play yes, I've got to come see you again <laughs> uh, it, it, it's from, all... your, from your mouth to my agent's ears <laughs> yes
It's always an absolute pleasure to see you on stage. I appreciate that. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here today. I hope you had a good time. I absolutely did. Thank you so much for having me. Well, if you like what you hear on Booth One, you can support our efforts in bringing you the finest in the art of lively conversation and scintillating guests by going to our website at www.booth-one.com and click on the donate button. It's quick. It's easy. And Robert, it's fully tax deductible. Yes, indeed. Always the best. You know, I work for a nonprofit, so that <laughs> right up my alley. Any contribution would, of course, be greatly appreciated. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter for Booth One. And my guest today, Robert Cornelius. This is Gary Zabinski saying so long and keep listening. The tooth is a stone. Start